Yeah, I would, I would like to introduce um, Jessica Rennish, who no, um, probably doesn't need much introduction, but she's um, as inter investigator award holder from the Wellcome Trust. She's head of the Reluctant Internationalists. She's also director of the newly launched um, Center for the Study of Internationalism here in Birkbeck, and she's written extensively on history of international public health um, and international Thank organizations. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, one of the things that propelled me into thinking about insiders and outsiders um, years ago was Patricia Clavin's call that historians of international organizations have to do much more to understand political power. Um, as most of you know, I've for some time now I've been working on the history of one particular body, the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, and trying to figure out uh, what shape such a history should take. And as part of this, and many of you have heard me talk about this before, I've been pondering the fact that international organizations such as UNRWA uh, themselves were clearly outsiders in a way. They operated in a political and a diplomatic system uh, that strictly prescribed their room for maneuver. UNRWA, just as many other international organizations, were, was only able to work for as long as its uh, membership deemed it beneficial to work. And since 72% of its funds were paid by, well, came from the United States, uh, UNRWA was ultimately shut down when it no longer secured what were um, uh, perceived to be US interests. So this is a crucial, rather obvious um, facet of political, of the realities of political power and international organizations. Today I want to do something slightly different. Um, I want to, for once, turn the gaze inwards and identify some of the processes of marginalization, of, of literally pushing certain groups and fields of activities uh, to the margins or the peripheries, um, and some of the hierarchies at work within UNRWA and its relationships with the recipients of aid. UNRWA was one of the first uh, bodies to be created during the Second World War, and it embodied a very self-consciously inclusive project of uh, relief and rehabilitation. Its catch line was to help the people help themselves. But how inclusive was it really? So I want to break this down by focusing first on a little bit about on structure and on its remit, and then secondly, um, uh, taking the relief workers at their word uh, and seeing how marginalization was at work there. These are very over, uh, preliminary and, and, and broad um, uh, observations. So first on the remit. One of the very first obstacles um, UNRWA's inclusive mission stumbled over was a basic contradiction. Um, it, relief was supposed to be distributed internationally, globally, as a means of treating uh, and eradicating causes of poverty, hardship, ethnic conflict, and more. But those countries who are politically and, of course, geographically at the center of the war were excluded from its reach. Of course, there were very clear, justifiable uh, uh, political and economic reasons for why um, the relief needs of the allied liberated countries outrank those of the ex-enemy nations. Um, but in practice, the, and in practice, this line proved flexible enough to admit Italy and Austria to the ranks of allies quite quickly, and then later to include Hungary and Finland as legitimate recipients of aid as well. The German population remained ineligible until the end. There are very clear reasons for this, but UNRWA's relief workers at the start were often disconcerted by this. During their introductions, um, I've, I've spent a little bit of time thinking about how they were trained and how they were introduced to the UNRWA project. And during these introductions, when they first came across UNRWA's very self-consciously global uh, insignia, such as the badges behind you, 
Uh, they pointed to the holes in the globe that actually were operated in practice and started to express doubts about how, how UNRWA's mission actually could work in practice. So outsiders of a kind were at play even before UNRWA had a chance to get started. In UNRWA's own preparations, outsiders were created by the, the crucial distinction between supplying and receiving countries. And again, many of you have heard me talk about this before. Again, this distinction reflected not just economic but also political realities. Few nations were entirely happy to submit to the conditions and, and the perceived or actual loss of sovereignty that came with foreign aid, um, especially if they had other options. And soon this uh, separation between receiving and supplying countries proved too inflexible for those nations in the north and west of Europe. Um, they were able to recover faster economically than those in the east and south and attempted very deliberately to join the table of winners. Many smaller member states rallied against um, uh, the fact that the priorities of the great powers often overrode their own, but countries such as France, Belgium, Netherlands, Denmark and Norway were in a much stronger position to negotiate better deals for themselves and outside of the um, uh, UNRWA negotiations. In UNRWA's own policy-making organs, and of course in the, in the wider world in which they operated, the influence of the, the Anglo-Saxon countries, as one former official noted, was an unavoidable fact. The third member of the Big Three, the Soviet Union, was by 1943 no longer formally a pariah state, but in reality, British and American diplomats were often still unsure about um, how to deal with or even interpret Soviet behavior. So this is a, a part of UNRWA's kind of starting diplomatic setup in a way, which already had certain insiders and outsiders embedded in it. And then on top of that, many more subtle and mundane processes of, in, of inclusion and exclusion were at work behind the curtains of the, the, the big political theatre of UNRWA's uh, general council meetings. And it, I, I apologise in advance. In order to get our head around this, we need to have a very quick look at UNRWA's structure. And... Digressions into UNRWA's structure are extremely tedious, and in UNRWA's own material usually result in something like these flowcharts. Bear with me, this will take one minute precisely. Um, probably the most influential forums in the way in which UNRWA decisions were made, policy was made, was, were the five standing technical committees. Um, they were advising and formulating on policy, they advised the central committee, which then made policy decisions, and um, they, they contained representatives from the big four, US, UK, uh, Soviet Union and China, uh, that represented most senior and ang the, the most senior and Anglo-American centric version of, of expertise and authority. And you'll see that there's a whole series of um, subcommittees as well. Secondly, there were the, the formal headquarters in Washington, uh, which worked with the technical committees and the governments. Then there came several regional offices, which translated the principles into operational. Uh, orders uh, for their regions. I'm most in interested in the most influential one of them in London, the ERO, European Regional Office. Um, there's also others in the Middle East and in the Southwest Pacific, which was in fact based in Sydney. And then finally, there were the missions, UNRWA's missions, which are the, this pivotal unit that actually organized and carried out the relief work. Um, but it's important here that these, the, the missions came notably low in this organizational hierarchy. They were conceived by the people sitting in Washington and to a certain extent in London, primarily as recipients of central orders and as distributors of stuff, of aid, 
to a certain extent of ideas. So within UNRWA, there were very several clear and overlapping hierarchies of activity, of knowledge, of expertise, and we can see a general trend of a, of a seemingly one-way dissemination of instructions downwards from Washington, so downwards this kind of chart, from Washington to London to the missions and from, missions, from the missions to the locals, and eastwards, so from uh, the US, UK to Warsaw, Prague, Belgrade, Tirana, and so on, Athens. And this clear hierarchy defined the relationships between Washington and the local administrators, and it more generally defined the relationships between donating and receiving countries. And it betrayed, to a certain extent, um, uh, UNRWA's central diplomats' understanding of what development, or as it soon was soon to be called technical assistance, was like. It was rooted in a certain conception of, a backward, of backward agricultural economies in that crucial belt of southern, central, eastern Europe uh, with technocratic, practical uh, solutions such as the me mechanization, fertilization, irrigation, soil conservation, technology, training. These are all uh, uh, solutions that could be kind of written, given in orders, and then simply followed out. Um, so it was a matter of supply, technology, technique. But of course, this sense of a one-way traffic is highly misleading. It obscures important questions and details. Many, there's many examples of receiving countries questioning or complaining about or pushing back against this Washington expertise. And in fact, this is part of a much bigger conceptual problem I'm dealing with in my research, which is how to write the receiving countries and the relief workers as the translators of these orders into practice into UNRWA's history. Uh, and thinking about marginalization and insiders and outsiders offers some opportunity to do that. So this is one kind of hierarchy that was embedded in UNRWA's structures. Another one is visible in the way in which different fields of UNRWA's work were ranked. Not all fields of what UNRWA did were equally valued. For example, the economists were indisputably the meta-specialists. Um, during the early planning stages and in, in UNRWA's predecessor bodies, they oversaw the, the detailed construction of levels of supplies and services in relation to need. And there was a vast array of specialists working with the economists or in their orbits, statisticians and lawyers and so on and so on. And then there were many other specialist fields that were represented and, and somehow wrangled for space in the relief project, agriculture, transport, industry, social work. And embedded in this hierarchy that was often unofficial and sort of implicit but clearly there was also a hierarchy, a gender hierarchy, as in, in who was carrying out and representing different fields. Medicine, public health, sanitation and related fields often appeared as, as largely autonomous, but perhaps not nearly as um, powerful as they sounded in accounts. I have to say, it pains me to say this because it undermines a key argument that I've made in my own work so far, but health and welfare here actually appeared as relatively marginal within the broader remits of economic planning and reconstruction. Perhaps this is surprising to those of us who may have been tempted to take the public health activists um, at their word, but I, I would like to hear what you think about this. It's fascinating to me that um, Wilbur Sawyer, UNRWA's director of health, later in 1947 made a historical, so a longitudinal argument for the importance of UNRWA's public health. In the, in the 1947 article, he listed annual budgets for the League of Nations Health Organization, for the health division of the Rockefeller, 
for the uh, United States Public Health Service and for the WHO Interim Commission, and UNRWA's was largest by far. So he concluded that in comparison, uh, this brings out the magnitude of UNRWA's total expenditures for health. And he said they had to be large because the requirements for relief services was, was huge and it was based on an unprecedented emergency. But this didn't, in fact, reflect discussions within UNRWA where different fields were pitted against each other and cases had to be made of which, uh, uh, on, based on which priorities resources were to be spent. So just because UNRWA's health operation was larger and more expensive than that of the League didn't make it larger and more expensive than other parts of UNRWA's work. And this is a, something that has, I, I've been struck by really quite recently and I'm, yeah, let's discuss it further. These internal hierarchies and rankings are important, um, and then they are partly reinforced by relief workers' practical experience of relief work. And so in the remaining time, I want to mention two other processes that created insiders and outsiders in what UNRWA did. The first concerns infrastructure, technology, transport, and communications. Many contemporaries thought that UNRWA's project was a perfect illustration of this new, what a new connected scientifically organized world could look like. And indeed, the, the, there were virtual armies of relief workers setting out on ships, on planes, on trains to travel between the various outposts of UNRWA's network. It, just to give you some numbers, in May 1946, 16,000 cables and telegrams were flowing in and out of HQ in Washington, and 13,500 incoming and outgoing cables were handled by the branch in London, by the communications branch in London. This is a vast amount of communication and, and messages sent backwards and forwards. The world certainly seemed a lot smaller and more connected. <coughs> but this undoubted connectedness obscured great inequalities and significant holes uh, in, in communication and transport and immediately created outsiders that were left behind. When the unremissions arrived, uh, parts of the communications infrastructure, such as telephone and telegraph systems, were completely or largely destroyed in, in stretches of Central, Eastern and Southern Europe. Partly this was, of course, a product of, of scorched earth as it had been applied. Consider, for example, um, these images of the so-called um, rail wolf or sleeper's plough in action, which were destroying Soviet railway lines during the German retreat and which uh, created actual outsiders. And partly it stemmed from longer-standing inequalities and differences. So picking up on the railway example, um, you'll know that the Soviet Union had a different gorge rail network, which meant that those traveling from west to east had to change trains at one point, uh, from narrow to broad gorge, and those traveling the other way, vice versa. This affected, sorry, this affected uh, the around one million or so Polish repatriates, which are photographed by an UNRWA photographer here, changing trains, moving from east of the river Bug uh, to the new uh, uh, German, uh, former German territories of Poland. But it also affected UNRWA's personnel. And this, these kind of images are really important, I think, for understanding the, the many examples of UNRWA workers describing their locations as outposts and their contacts as outsiders because they weren't connected and, in their view, just couldn't do their jobs. Uh, just to give one uh, short example, a, a July 1946 schedule of transmissions uh, from, from London to various European and Asian points showed that communications was by far slowest in parts of Central and Eastern Europe. Singled out were Belgrade, Budapest, Kiev, Minsk, and Tirana as the, the black holes where messages were sent into and that nothing ever came back. 
that, that an exasperated note was included, I quote, the mission at Kiev, although it had the use of the Soviet government diplomatic pouch for five weeks, underlined, underlined, after its arrival in March 1946, received no official mail. This created huge problems. It was uh, in the areas most suffering as a result of the destruction of infrastructure uh, that were now most cut out, most cut off and out of the loop. And it was precisely those areas where UNRWA had to carry out the bulk of its work and manage a very difficult and contradictory set of messages of need and deserving and success. So lack of uh, technology infrastructure created physical outsiders. Um, those left behind by being unconnected and unreachable. And finally, there was another crucial way by which outsiders were made in the course of UNRWA's relief operations. The receiving countries all had to conform to a certain way of going about um, demanding and receiving, claiming and receiving supplies, and working with UNRWA's officers along the way. Everyone, to be sure, wanted the, the, the goods, the stuff, but relief workers were often quick to judge whether their contacts from national and local governments were willing to collaborate with them or not. Um, their relationships with local officials were directly informed by how much they were able to negotiate their way around the countries, the receiving countries' bureaucracy and whether they could spot um, familiar political and administrative inst institutions. Interestingly, this didn't always coincide completely with the degree of physical destruction or economic development, although they were important factors. And it didn't necessarily correspond with the later geography of the Cold War. Um, in fact, at the beginning, relief workers seemed to confront a division, broadly speaking, not so much between Eastern and Western Europe as between Northern and Central parts and those in the South. The mission in Czechoslovakia, for example, was, according to the official historian, UNRWA's official historian, I quote, one of the most competent administratively of all the receiving countries. It had the organizational machinery and ability to carry out its part of the UNRWA work, the distribution and utilization of aid without constant intervention and nursing by the mission. Material conditions were significantly worse in uh, Ukraine and Belarusia, but even here, Relief workers reported that there were competent ministries and well-run technical organizations they could work with, and that they were staffed with officials who had, who had training, who were capable, who were willing to take charge. This contrasts very sharply with uh, reports from Greece, some of them from Yugoslavia, and of course from Albania, um, where relations were really rather more fraught. Already in her preparatory lectures in London, one UNRWA worker, Rhoda Dawson, was told that not much could be expected from Greece. And I'm, I'm quoting here from her diary, from her notes that she took at the time. Yugoslavs tend to be very efficient in self-government, she wrote, but Greeks less successful, no good organization, spoon-fed, paid, not good workers. The mission in Tirana, too, filed frustrated reports about their unhelpful relationship with the Albanians, and according, again, to the official historian Woodbridge, um, quote, gave up trying to discover the causes of the government's bewildering shifts from a relatively cooperative attitude to downright obstructionism. So these, there were clear um, uh, differences in, in political and administrative systems, and the relief workers were very quick to judge the degree to which they could um, navigate them. And then these different relationships with local officials quickly intermingled with relief workers' own subjective feelings of cultural affinity and solidarity and sympathy, or, or lack of them. So to conclude, 
this us and them inside or outside a binary is, is a really important one for relief work, for aid. Um, UNRWA, like so many other organisations, operated in some ways like a club. It had a gate to membership and, and entrance. It had set rules and, um, and uh, required behaviours. It's true that this stark binary of insiders, outsiders, probably isn't that helpful for, for grappling with some of the more slippery intermediate categories. But I think it can be a very helpful reminder to pay closer attention to power and to hierarchies and to um, testing which fields of activity and with which groups were pushed to the margins um, and by what processes. In some ways, UNRWA's public health work in parts of southern and eastern Europe was doubly marginalised as a result of political geography and of disciplinary hierarchies. Ultimately, I guess I want to leave you with the idea that um, there's these num a number of overlapping hierarchies within UNRWA, um, but the question of perspectives is crucial here. To relief workers, outsiders were defined primarily by practical and by political inaccessibility and by a, a lack of willingness to play along. Thank you. Professor Emeritus at the uh, French National Centre for Scientific Research, CNRS. Yeah. CNRS, yes, but I am. Thank you so much for your, for your nice words and for the invitation. Uh, the paper, Ironies of um, Technical Assistance During the Interwar Period, is about the challenges for aid agencies of broadening their reach and the difficulties they experienced. Uh, liberals of the David Mitrani's tribe celebrate this aspiration to universalism. Technical, non-controversial matters offered an entering wedge for inter the furtherance of interstate cooperation. The story uh, I am telling here is of the deliberate scaling down of expectations uh, the recognition by aid agencies of their own limits. Top-down, large-scale programs developed from abroad receded in the interwar period in favor of grassroots developmentalist local investments. Um, a number of factors might explain uh, such a shift in the giving relation. The, the disruption of indigenous health regime Greece, Central Europe, and the corresponding resilience of outdated bureaucracies, conflicting priorities among the aid agencies, the LNHO disposed to run whenever it is whistled to by any government, while the Rockefeller extended its helping hand only to countries both anxious and able to helping themselves, Internal tension between positing a single path to modernity, the American appetite for bigger and better, or charting different paths that would embed lasting paying off programs in the field. Let's quickly see two cases, uh, Greece and Yugoslavia, which both illustrate the difficult art of assisting without disrupting. Greece may be seen as a textbook case for the giver-receiver pathologies. The strange thing is that 
unable to take it from the inside, aid agencies in charge of state building yielded to the oversimplification of national character studies. Essentialist, prejudiced, the League's 1929 report failed to see anything in the Greek, Greek mind that was not the face of the opposite. The trouble here is that state building or nation building yielded to character building an over-ambitious remit for birds of passage. Greece, as it seems, was outside the pale, a disconcerting one in Europe, but not of Europe, and it was described as being C 600 years behind modern development in sanitation. The riddle, the Greek enigma, posed to Western observers lie here, not in its alleged primitivism, but in its disinterest in moving away from its primitiveness. Such a standoffish attitude and cultural retrenchment mirrored the miserable self-image the nation had of itself in the wake of the Asia Minor disaster, 1922. Indeed, aid agencies were in dire need of realizing that the world is not so plastic as they fantasize, and that backwardness is sometimes a bulwark, a protection against self-obliteration. Yugoslavia looks like Greece's reverse image. Both countries in the wake of World War I were in a complete hygienic illiteracy, but while Greece as a distance of a decade had not yet started in the field of hygiene, 300 health centers, malaria stations, etc., redressed in Yugoslavia a self-perceived weakness. You are a magician, the Rockefeller president wrote Andrea Stampar, their stubborn inventor. A distant cousin of the Russian Narodniki, the Balkan beer outlined to the special intention of peasant states a barefoot hygiene devoid of any Western complex. Belgrade, and mostly Zagreb, had not tried to copy everything done elsewhere. While touring the Balkans, Winslow captured this display of third world assertiveness. Stampa has been wise in attacking the first problems first, scarlet fever on tracks, and not attempting to transport advanced procedures into a primitive country. Such a departure from the standard made sense of a policy devised to be implemented at a low price. Stampa's Yugoslavia, in order to be herself, rejected the West and became the West. That was enough to make the most deviant peace cherished as a most significant native development found in European countries. I spoke of scaling down. Let's have a quick look to this wisdom of limits on two cases, Central Europe and China. Post-war aftermath are replete with, are replete with crash programs. Let's only remember of Prague, June 1919, they want to make their country a small US. Akin to a car or a TV set, a particular health device could be abstracted from its context and conveyed elsewhere. No surprise then that results were not forthcoming. America Americanizing European public health here lies the greatest danger, some Rockefeller officials thus 
worried. My gun, for instance, was far from convinced that American methods were the best for Europe. This was a fatal blow to the prevailing diffusionist viewpoint. Indeed, Central Europe had uh, uh, hard realities conspired to turn grandiose schemes into a more affordable program of civil service reform. Aid agencies, are we, faced, are we said, faced in the former Habsburg land some sort of Dickensian circumlocution offices. Plagued with antiquated methods, part-time occupation, low salaries, and pestiferous politicians, health services were not worthy of the name. To oust old-timers, eradicate German influence, and get official in line turned out to be out of reach. Accordingly, the Rockefeller sponsored as, as a kind of flanking movement, sponsored schools and institutes of hygiene as keys not only to revamping ossified state machineries, but to drying them up. We are uh, American transplants, though they were, these schools kept their own personality. You know the, 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 the Zagreb one, which was adorned with the peasants, University of the Danish sort, and, she, and, and who delivered courses in housekeeping, cooking, child hygiene, waving. We are far, very far from the Rockefeller priorities, clinical teaching, and strong laboratories, other sensitivities, other agendas. What is striking in this loosely spread constellation of, is that school and, and institutes form a group, a single sound chamber, eager to undertake joint studies, no mean feat in an, in an age of increasing fragmentation. What's hard to miss is the echo effect between the ever-extending inquiries which Geneva was frantically launching in regard to the impact of the Great Depression and those carried out in Budapest, Prague, or Warsaw on household budgets, calories, vitamins, milk, flies, diphtheria. Synchronism was perfect. So was the West coming to the East or the East to the West? Fragile as, fragile as it was, the Danubian constellation might not only have been a, bul a bulwark, but the generator of some health European identity in the making. Scaling down was occurring in China, too. It has been said that public health in the last century ought to be seen as a chapter of international relations. Technical assistance in the case at hand is not an end in itself, but an entering wedge to revamp both China's ability and will to resist Japan. China was but another name for universalization, not a small remit, while the most general sentiment in Peiping was hatred of the foreigner and the League. Faced by passive, if not a style recipient state, aid agencies were challenged to grab the insistence of a tradition-bound society on its uniqueness and intransivity. The very term international has a sinister meaning in China, Reichmann, the medical director of the League, reported. This made the incentive to plug in Chinasness all the stronger while standards of excellence were abruptly left aside, 
the Rockefellers switched to channify narrow, monitorable objectives. Giving super medicine fell out of favor. A serious shift, as for 1936, both the Rockefeller and the LHO claimed to remain content with backing Chinese efforts that were 60% efficient rather than Western ones that were 100%. Both kissed goodbye to forced march modernization. Both kept high-tech medicine at bay. Both pointed out that China were to work out its own salvation, even if that meant being saved slowly. Which brings us to the final question. Can transnational expertise assist slow-moving societies in recovering a sense of their national identity? The answer, with China still in mind, is yes and no. Yes, because uh, its success in recapturing control over maritime customs, postal communications, and salt, re salt revenues are hard to dissociate from the multifaceted involvement of the League, the Rockefeller, and the Milbank. However modest they may seem, their nonpartisan advice, loans, and technical training secured both the containment of foreign power and the attainment of foreign expertise. No, insofar as the conviction that the work had to be known by the Chinese themselves gained ground, moving from the claim that China ought to be assisted from abroad to the assertion that it was bound to modernize on its own. Forced into acculturation in order to survive, China acquired some marks of modernity, but rejected the view that modernization means convergence. By 1939, the League was championing a new paradoxical approach according which the best assistance it could give was that which most quickly brought about its own termination. Meanwhile, it had to act behind the scenes anonymously, so to speak. My interest in China or in Yugoslavia stems from an impression of them as places where international bodies reinvented themselves places, uh, to put it succinctly, where a culture-free model of expertise transfer fell away. Localness, plasticity, and awareness of the contextual and the vernacular, in China, the interwar health establishment took a leaf from the warning that cultures could be extinguished through excessive assimilation. Indeed, the the old positivist phase in some spontaneous universalization of the best was dying. Attraction and repulsion mingled the recipient state would not rely on foreign input if it did not assume at least in part the appearance of a local German pro product. Most telling was the increasing effort to hide the foreign origin of the foreign gift, to give it a native mask. A strange reversal, transnational experts had striven to universalize super medicine, challenged to grasp the insistence of tradition-bound societies on their uniqueness, aid agencies realized the foolishness of stimulating felt needs, 
and agreed that values are more or less combinable, in other words, they ceased to ignore or transcend cultural difference and strove to build upon it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. I can manage, I think. All right, so from Switzerland, um, David Arredonio, Thomas David, and uh, Ethan Lin. David is at uh, the Graduate Institute and is head of the history? Yes, head of the history. Skip that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, and uh, um, Ethan is a graduate? Yeah. Finishing. Yeah. Finishing. Uh, um, uh, yeah. It's a special Very status. PhD student. In, at the University of Lausanne and uh, the Center, uh, Interdisciplinary Center for International, the International, is that? Is it that was, well, it's uh, um, the Institute of Political, Historical and International Studies. Thank you. Well, um, <laughs> I think it's, uh, yeah, it just changed, now I have to. Uh, so, in their introductory remarks to the workshop, their organizer referred to him, I quoting them, histories of the development of international public health in the 20th century that tend to be celebration of achievements, whether the enrolling of an ever-widening number of nations in programs to improve health and prevent disease, the adoption of shared standards and measurement to track health status, or the circulation of health researcher and statements across nation, national frontiers." End of the quote. So as far as we are concerned, fellows and fellowship programs participate to that movement, even if our stand is, of course, more critical, and we stay away from celebration or achievements. Nevertheless, Rockefeller Foundation fellows are actors of a movement whose objective was precisely intended to improve health and prevent disease. It aimed at homogenizing practice through standardization and common regulation, thanks to the circulation of health research. And this quote from the annual report of the Rockefeller Fellow is a good illustration of the politics of the foundation related to the fellowship. You can see that the first sentence, the award of fellowships on an international basis constitute in the foundation the most important single device for the training of competent personnel for future leadership. And after they are saying that, you know, some of these fellows indeed have gained outstanding recognition, such the award of the Nobel Prize. So it's the reason why Rockefeller fellows constitute a wonderful case in order to understand the history of the development of international public health during the 20th century or related to this conference the, to understand the trajectory of insiders of global public health. However, the organizers urge us to think about the outsiders the persons relegated to the background of international public health. And as you will see, this workshop led us to reconceptualize in a new way the role of fellows. And we really thank you, the organizer, to give us the opportunity you know, to, to broaden our understanding of what are fellows and fellowship programs. Our presentation 
will have three parts. In the first one, we will present a database on the Rockefeller Fellows, which will be the starting point of our next research project. In the second part, we will come back to the theoretical and methodological implication for research of the outsider concepts. And in the third part, we will illustrate our thoughts with the case of fellows in Taiwan in the aftermath of World War II. So the first, um, first part is the presentation of, of database, which is really illustrating the insiders of global health during the period from 19. You know, 19 up to 1972. I see that Yitang is looking at me, so it means that I'm speaking too much, so I'm going to, uh, <laughs> to go very fast. So, is it true? <laughs> so, this is uh, the, the, this project. So, we merged two databases. The first one is based on the directory of 1972. You all know that, you know, the Rockefeller uh, Foundation published a directory including all they pretend to include all the fellows between 1919 and 1972. And so for this directory, we use scanning with optical character recognition in order to create this database. We merged with a second database, which was the fellows in social science, collected by, by somebody you all know, Ludovic Turnes, who is part of this project. And he used different sources, among them the Rockefeller archives, and found almost 1,000 fellows. So what is interesting, I will not develop here, it appears that more than 10% of the fellows were not in the directory database, which opened us something new. And so at the end, we have you know, uh, a database. The merging of this database means that we have almost 11,000 persons. So what is in this database, except you know, just names and so on? So we have information on, this is the structure, information on persons, you know, the names, the gender, nationalities, perhaps just one thing concerning the name. For the names that were not written in Latin alphabet, we'll have a possibility to use the original names for searching. And so this is thanks to Yitang. It could be very interesting for Chinese names, you know, that to have a translation and so on, because we discover, thanks to Yitang, that it's very difficult to, uh, to, to sometimes understand who is who uh, among uh, China's fellows. The other um, structure is information on the education before the fellowship. Next one is the fellowship designation, so the division of the Rockefeller, the categories of grant, the field and subfields of the fellowship. And as Jessica said, there are very clear hierarchy within these fields, uh, within the Rockefeller, and the career before and we hope sometimes after the, 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 this person gets the, the, um, the fellowship. And so you see that there are links in between these different fields, and here is the steps, you know, housing institution and so on. It's very abstract. We just want to give one example. The favorite of uh, Yitang is Yves Biro. Yeah, you know she's joking because every time, and I know that some of you know him very well and so on, so it's, you know, it's not a bad choice. Uh, so here is a picture of him from the, and here. So you can see, it's a, it's too fast for me, you know. In in French, I can do it very well. But you can see here very well the information on him. Here is all all the first category on names. Here is 
sorry, the question of the fellowships. Here is his career and steps of the fellowships. So for all the 11,000 persons, we have such kind of information. So it's very interesting and very uh, nice to find. And now, so for the moment, it's the actual, uh, you know, state of the database, and we plan now to do the following um, uh, development. The first is a glossary of organization and institutions, because they are coming from very different, and it will be very interesting to have a glossary. And the second point will be, you know, geolocalization, or geolocalization thanks to geographic information system. So it's not just a, a tool, you know, but for us, it's really related to research questions. And one of these research questions is to see education affiliation, if the fellows belong to what we could call regional epistemological communities. And we think that it's very interesting, and perhaps you remember, it's related to the, to the project of the Rockefeller, because if we come back to the... Here. This is the map, and it was important, so it's to come back to the... <laughs> and now I'm stopping because... <laughs> okay, here. And now I'm stopping because I'm running out of time, but there are other um, yeah. development we could do, and I give the floor to um, Davide, because for the moment we speak mostly on insiders, this database, and now we are trying to see how outsiders can come Thank you very much, Thomas. And before I start my part, I just wanted to add something that I was discussing with you, Susan, just before we started. Of course, one of the things that we've been uh, talking about is also who was doing the job on the spot, who were the Rockefeller Foundation men on the spot. And this is also part of the project. It's not visible yet, but of course, this in terms of reflecting on inclusions and exclusions, insiders and outsiders is certainly part of uh, uh, the kind of files that we are very interested in having a look at. So let's go back to um, something else, and I would like to develop on insiders and outsiders. So the Rockefeller Foundation's uh, fellow incarnates the crucible and vector of a specific internationalist vision based upon the consolidation and cooperation among nation states. The Rockefeller Foundation fellow in public health as in other realms, was somebody who was supposed to build, reinforce, and improve public administration in his or her original home country, thanks to the experience gathered somewhere else. And as Thomas said, the workshop gave us a wonderful opportunity to problematize and conceptualize the role of fellows. So we wish to start with an assumption, a quite trivial one. Fellows were insiders or outsiders with, with respect to somebody else whether this was an individual or an institution. And secondly, we would like to share with you the following scheme, which is just uh, uh, on my back. So when we started reflecting on this paper, and for a very short time, we thought in binary terms. And we toyed with the idea of insiders-outsiders being mutually exclusive categories. But we rapidly came to the conclusion that we, this was, as far as we are concerned, a simplistic and inaccurate way of conceptualizing the issue. And by the way, documents we came across proved that this kind of binary thinking was wrong. So we came up with the idea of a single individual, a fellow, being more than a, only an insider or just an outsider. The fellow could be, even if this is not a systematic condition, 
an insider and an outsider. And this brought us to add a further dimension, a spatial one, which you can see in the scheme. So we included the local, the national, and the international. And of course, there is a third dimension that you cannot see in the scheme behind me, which is a temporal dimension, which should be added to this scheme. And so there were conditions that change over time, and this is something that is reflected in, in the database. Allow me to give you a simple example of what I mean. So some of the fellows that we came across, and Lyon is very familiar with the example that I'm about to make, were Chinese doctors trained in China at the Peking Union Medical College which was a quite sui generis institution, which awarded fellowships to go to the USA. If we have a look at our scheme here, we will find that uh, these individuals were outsiders of a certain kind because they were often selected since they were part of an elite in public health or medical experts, and they were trained in already, and already working in a very sui generis, as I said, institution the PUMC, the Peking Union Medical College. But they were also outsiders in the USA, certainly with respect to the US academic system or in the university programs they were uh, enrolled in. And third, they were insiders, at least from the point of view of the Rockefeller Foundation, especially at the end of their training, when they were supposed to join hospitals or other branches of the Chinese public sector, and they were also insiders, and more than that, they were, to, to, they were supposed to spearhead change, modernization, and new health practices in China. And finally, when they were back in China, after the fellowship, they were also outsiders of some sorts, since they were somewhat different with respect to all the other colleagues that had not gone to the USA. And so, in many respects, there are borderlines. So we would situate somewhere here, somewhere here, and it's very, very hard to see. And uh, this, this, pro this way of problematizing insiders and outsiders is very different from your case, Jessica, when you refer to uh, UNRWA, I think. And these examples bring us to a third point, that we do see insiders, outsiders, as a very useful analytical tool, and as well as a construction that help us reflecting on social mobility and on factual situations that fostered or hampered the change from insider to outsider and vice versa. And of course, there is yet another layer uh, of our research that has to be uh, at least mentioned, and this is particularly hard for us. What did fellow felt like? Did they, did they feel like insiders or outsiders? Uh, what was their awareness of being cogs of a bigger local, national, and international engrenage? And unless we find documents, and we have found some documents that shed some light on this part of the story, our interpretation will be indirect, and our analysis will be, so to say, by ricochet. Uh, which is through the mediate voices and documents of institutions like the Rockefeller Foundations. And of course, this issue can be mitigated thanks to the presence of Itang, who can work on, uh, on Chinese institutions' uh, archives and other local archives. We fully agree with the conveners of the workshop when they say that the repeated sounding of trumpets may, may have relegated to the background outsiders in the international health arena. If we assume fellows to be the willing executioners of the Rockefeller Foundation, 
we would consider them as the perfect example of indoctrinated Americanized experts that Neon was referring to, as the longer manners of an institution with global ambitions, and in other words, we would strip them of any kind of agency. Now, if on one hand we do not wish to, we do not wish to overstate the role of fellows, we would like to take some dust off them and to bring them off the shadow into the light. Therefore, just like the conveners of the workshop, we do wonder how the history of international public health will change when we will start factoring in this conspicuous, in our case, group of outsiders. One thing is for sure, we do not question the assumption that fellow were merely outsiders, and we do not want to take any possibility of discussing their loyalty, the voices, and also their contestation. Moreover, shedding a light on fellows contributed to take away some of the fluffiness and vagueness of a certain kind of global history. Perhaps we are just proposing a more classic, but probably sounder historical approach. And in so doing, we hope we explore the international system of public health, its rule, written and unwritten, its reach and its commitment to inclusiveness. And here again, I quote the blurb of the workshop. In the way we approach our research, Rockefeller Foundation fellows are supposed to tell us more about the functioning of different international systems, about their continuities and ruptures, and certainly the issue of center and periphery is at the core of what we try and, and do. Let me conclude my, my part uh, uh, distinguishing or entering into the case uh, of China. And here I think that uh, we learned a lot from Lyon and what we're about to say follows what he just uh, told us on the case of China. First, our work in the archives of international organizations and philanthropic foundations has led us to question the idea of a monolithic category of international fellowships or fellowship programs. Since the very beginning of the 20th century, as far as fellowships in medical sciences and public health were concerned, the institutions that set up and run these programs distinguished their own purposes, categories of fellows, and expectations. We came up with an initial categorization of fellows which is supposed to address some of the core questions of this, work, of this workshop. Now, the first category that we easily recognize is international fellowship, is international fe fellowship programs. And so the kind of doctors of the Peking Union Medical College are the typical example of this category. But what we found out, and we go back to the point and my gun uh, vision for China for sure, is a second category of fellowship programs administered by international organizations but that operated at the national level. So China, and Chinese doctors in China, people that never left China. And these are an awful lot of fellows. And there is a third kind of um, a pro a programs or category of fellows, and these are public health, uh, public health officers. These are yet another category, which is very different from the, the, from the, from the first one. And this is also something that we would like to develop uh, in our research. And if I may add another point before turning the floor to Itang, it's that this idea that was set up initially by the Rockefeller Foundation is then taken up by UNRWA from 1943 to 1947 and after 1947 by the WHO. 
So the origin is clearly, at least as far as we can say, a Rockefeller Foundation kind of origin. And this certainly applies for public health. Itani. So thank you. So now I will present you a concrete case of Republic of China after 1949. It is a case in point. It illustrates that the International Fellowship Program was a crucial element for outsiders to become insiders at the international level. Uh, may I? So through studying the long-term career path of Chinese public health workers, we discuss how public health workers change their status with respect to the scheme that we previously shared with you. As you might recall, in 1949, the Communist Party of China took control of the mainland and the Republic of China retreated to Taiwan. By that time, Chinese health officers who had been awarded international fellowship work for the national administration we can consider them as the insider at the national level. Changes of the political situation and the defeat of Republican Chinese government had led important consequences as to their professional trajectories. As you can see over here, I listed uh, three different trajectories. There are first of uh, there are first group of them were recruited by the UN organizations to work in Geneva. So they become the insiders at the international level. And there are the second group of them, they remained in mainland, and the third group of them who retreated to Taiwan with the Republican government. For the second and the third groups, they become insiders to the National Health Administration of the both sides of China. We shouldn't forget that we are talking about a tiny group of internationalized health officers. In the following 30 years, they show to be able to change and to adapt to national and international career paths. Some of them who work for international organizations eventually return to the People's Republics of China uh, several years later. On the other hand, those who moved to Taiwan in 1949 ended up working for the WHO. When we focus more on the case of Taiwan, it might be useful to re recall that since 1950 already, the WHO officially collaborated with uh, the ROC government. In this context, the former Rockefeller Fellows become WHO's favorite interlocutors to implement that organization's campaigns. So uh, in this slide, I list two uh, people, respect respectively the head of the WHO <laughs> tuberculosis and malaria program in Taiwan. I selected both of them because their initial training was distinct, yet their career path is really similar. As you can see on the right hand, Tao was trained at the Peking Union Medical School, and whereas Liang was trained at Taipei Imperial University, the cradle of medical doctors under the Japanese colonial regime in Formosa. After their graduation, they actually work for the National Health Administration. With respect to our scheme, we could see them as insiders of the national administrations. However, we shouldn't forget that the national administration were intimately connected to, connected to and financed by international health organizations. Tao worked at the National Institute of Health, which was financed and 
um, designed by the League of Nations Health Organizations and the Rockefeller Foundation. Whereas Liang was work at the Taiwan Malaria Research Institute, which was founded by the Rockefeller Foundation since 1946. Moreover, both, both Tao and Liang were selected to go on international fellowship program during their service in the above institute. The international fellowship, in their cases, the training at the Johns Hopkins, as you can see, I mark it in red, give them uh, knowledge and diploma that were essential for becoming insiders at the international level. When they terminated their fellowship, they joined the elite of policy makers as directors of public health programs in Taiwan. At the same time, they interacted with the WHO by assisting conference and uh, expert committees while publishing their programs in Eng English written journals and the WHO publications. Lastly, their careers path changed again in the last 10 years after their fellowship. They started to working for the WHO. Tao became the WHO anti-tuberculosis expert since 1959, whereas Liang was recruited by the Pan-American Health Organization in 1957, and both of them stayed until 1980s uh, after their retirement. A former public health staff at the National Taiwan University once wrote that the public health experts in Taiwan were aware of the importance of international fellowship programs. They reasoned that since the US University alumni had formed a solid circle within the WHO, having a US diploma is essential to pursue an international health career. The international fellowship program was an opportunity for them to go internationalize, which equals to get much better working conditions than being a local public health worker. So I wish to go back to the work of Tao and Liang in Taiwan to unveil a further group of insiders. To carry out WHO policies and programs, they need field workers. I cited, um, may I, the next slide? Um, I cited the numbers of workers involved in DDT spraying to demonstrate the skill of the program, as you can see uh, here. You can see there are a lot of people that were involved. And the field worker might be viewed as insiders at the local level and outsiders to the national and international level. Of course, access to international careers were denied to these individuals. These field workers were trained in very specific techniques. As you can see, um, the photo here, as you can see, well, um, workers were trained to use DTT spraying equipment. It's really specific. The ROC government, the Republican uh, China government in uh, Taiwan, hired them on a short-term basis with contracts from two to six months. The first example was DDT spraying workers who were trained to manipulate spraying equipment across Taiwan. The anti-malaria program recruited more than 500 men over 18 years old in 1950s. The second example was the lay home visitor of the anti-tuberculosis program. As you can see, I listed uh, some facts over here. Uh, following gender stereotype, the Taipei Tuberculosis Control Center recruited middle school graduate unmarried women and trained them with social work and interview skills. 
they were in charge of knocking on every door, persuading people to take X-ray screening, handling over drugs to patients, calling patients for follow-up examination. The case of lay home visitors also sheds light on the fact that very few women became insiders at the national and international levels. Some rare exception, uh, exception were nursing experts. These field workers remain outsiders vis-a-vis -vis national and international organizations. Only, only very few of them obtained the, pro, the government's contract once the program terminated. In 1964, the Taiwanese parliament discussed several times about how to resolve the unemployment problem of DTT spraying workers after the island-wide DTT spraying had terminated. So for the conclusion of our presentation, the Rockefeller International Fellowship Program was a decisive element granting the possibility to national administration of being involved with or even to change their career path to the international health organizations. The recipient of international fellowship programs ob obtained US diploma, they became familiar with public health research, and they became fluent in English language. In a sense, we claim they become insiders of the international health system. At this stage of our research, it is still hard to be precise on the extent to which becoming insiders of one system, they become outsiders with respect to the national administration they had been working on. On the contrary, the group of public health field workers clearly were outsiders to both national and international administrations. Once, once the anti-epidemic programs terminated, they struggled with unemployment. Highly placed where? Uh, on the local level, not in Washington. Uh, and secondly, to the collective project, you're missing 118 people, and those are outsiders in a very interesting sense. Do you know why data wasn't collected on them? Mm -hmm. Anra? Um, so I think there certainly is a sense, there was a sense of, of outside, of of entire missions, mission setups, structures are seeing themselves as outsiders. Um, the the I've I've written before on the Poland mission. I think that was a is a is a it's a it's a very extreme case of this. Um, they were considered and this went right up to the, the mission chief and his, his deputies. I think they considered themselves as outsiders. Certainly, once the 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 Cold War air flowed around them and they felt left behind. And it's, it's interesting, they described themselves, the, the, the diaries from that time are talking about the cold of the winter and the cold being frozen out of, of politics in very much the same language. And this is kind of the, the, the pre-Cold War cold air that's flowing in. And as a result, they, are, they, they, they talk about themselves as outsiders. No one is listening to them anymore. They're being cut out of Washington. They can go claim, make claims and demands to Washington and they're being ignored. So absolutely. And I think equally, uh, op equal observations can be made for other Eastern European missions as well. Yes. 
Um, so yeah, I because it's it's um, it's a directory who was um, which was complied in uh, 1970s, if I recall well. It's actually, when we're looking in the Chinese fellow, we, we noticed that only the fellow who ends up in Taiwan were recorded. And uh, of course, in other countries, it's the same thing. For those who stay in a Western block, they are recorded. But for those who stay in Eastern, well, in the Soviet bloc, are deliberately left out of the rectory. Yeah, that's what we uh, observed from uh, from the directory. And the list of name of uh, um, uh, the third uh, for the interwar period in China, the third layer. Um, so, for instance. Um, uh, those that are um, hired to do some specific uh, health work somewhere, of course we don't have the names of uh, these lists might exist if uh, they were communicated to a center or a university or something, but also because of the political and uh, situation in China, many of these programs move with the Japanese occupation, with, uh, with, uh, with all sorts of revolts, etc. And, and, and there is no way to control uh, all these, these things. So the third, the third layer of our research would be um, a very general kind of uh, reflection. On the other two levels, on the contrary, we have lists even of Chinese individuals that never left China and moved around. This we can find, I think. Yeah. But of course, they are not included in these 10,000. And these are hundreds of people. But just a last thing is these persons are not in the directory for two reasons. For because of the anti-communist um, <laughs> politics in the US. But what we discovered, too, it's a way to protect them in, you know, and not to show the names in front of everybody and so on, because they are still living in the um, communist part and so on. So it was, too, a way to protect these persons. Yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the Rockefeller was obviously paranoid in the Cold War period. Yes. <laughs> um, just to make a couple of observations, sure. if I may. Um, it was, it tried to suppress its funding to Birkbeck, to Bernal here in Birkbeck, actually, because of the communist links. Joseph Needham was another embarrassing person, although <laughs> UNESCO and of course massively um, involved with China. I think the, uh, I can say, your database work is obviously, it's wonderful because the, if you can look at careers across structures, I think that's really significant. There's one point which I encountered with the significance of a fellowship which was on the, um, say, the really uh, lamentable um, response of the Rockefeller to Nazi Germany, because there, um, there was great hopes of, um, for example, William Beveridge, yes. that the Rockefeller would provide substantial funding. But what it did was to say, we will only restrict our support to former fellows. Yes. So having a fellowship, on the one hand, yes, they were. Yeah. Having been a fellow, you were, of course, as persecuted, you were an outsider, but the fellowship then offered a, a sort of a protecting passport to, in fact, saving their lives. Yes. So I think it, you might find that there are 
sort of further knock-on yes. sort of uh, issues. Um, just, I mean, on the, um, I can say, the, the issues of Nazism and the legacy of Nazism with regard to UNRWA, um, I looked at one stage at UNRWA and Bergen-Belsen, and there was enormous dispute internally. Uh, I, you probably know further, just to mention it. There was a new regulation that came in regarding who could be employed on the medical staff of UNRWA. So it meant that certain very sympathetic older members, there was one called Leighton, who was very critical about Nazi medical experiments and did a great deal, were suddenly dismissed. And then a, others come in, and there's a particular example of Silento, this Australian fascist. Um, Here's the fascist, isn't he? A sort of Nazi sympathizer who is now the key person running the Bergen Belsen operation and so on. So the criteria of staffing on the medical side and looking at who was on the medical staff who were allowed to work and whether the staffing criteria was used to kick certain people who were too engaged with victims um, could be an interesting issue. Can I just perhaps just make one or two comments related to what you've just said? The first one is um, the question of career pattern. I think it's very interesting and in that we really hope with this 10,000 person to be able to do a prosopography of this person and in particular after they receive the scholarships you know, what kind of pattern and so on. The second point that we would like to emphasize is the fact that this database should be available to a large audience in the near future. So it's not just for us, we hope that in four or five years it will be available. And the last point is what you just said, is we didn't think about this, but I think it's very stimulating. This huge database will also allow us to think about who didn't receive a fellowship, so who was an outsider. And I think it's very interesting. We will have this bunch of people they receive, but who were the person who didn't receive? You just mentioned perhaps some cases, and we could go further and so on. And it could be very interesting to think about these uh, points. Uh, on staffing, I mean, this we, we can talk about this a lot, and I'm very, I've been very interested um, in trying to trace the very often very murky kind of uh, instructions on who should be hired on which terms. And you know that, uh, as much as I do, that it was a very debated and disputed area. It seemed to be a very ad hoc area, that in some parts of UNRWA, so even in some parts of the DP mission in Germany, certain rules are applied, and others very different rules are applied. So it's, it's partly a, a question of um, local chiefdoms, in a way, where there's kind of local chiefs have friends and you know, affinities and they implement them and in others very different rules apply. I think UNRWA is no different to many other international organizations in that sense. It was just bigger. Um, the, I, I think you know more about the, the rules for medical staff, uh, the, uh, the staffing criteria than I do. I know that at some point these um, uh, rules were driven by desperation. So when there was a vast dying lack of People. This was the time when the class two, when the DPs themselves were recruited, but this was way after Belson. So later on, when the DP camps were practically um, uh, empty, there was a couple of, kind of uh, emergency uh, uh, orders sent out, just find anyone. <laughs> and suddenly, DPs were kind of trained or, 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 or 
dugout and kind of give them a white coat to kind of be doctors for their own camps themselves. So I think very different rules applied at different times. The the, the Belson case is, uh, you're right, Zelenda, it was a fascist, right? And, and plenty of people pointed it out at the time. So, <laughs> yeah, I will. Political uh, aspects of international health and the fellowship programs in particular. So, I thought ETAM's uh, presentation was really interesting because it shows how uh, the, the revolution affects the trajectories of these, uh, these experts and the way the political situation uh, affects their uh, professional lives. And obviously, that kind of highlights the fact that these experts are just experts, also political beings. And, uh, uh, it echoes for me working on. Spain, where in the interwar period, a lot of the Rockefeller fellows are very politically active on both left and right, and as well as being experts, are also government ministers and members of parliament, and all these kind of things. And that really affects their statuses insiders and outsiders, both nationally and internationally, and how it changes over time. So, I have two questions about that. One is if uh, this database is designed to kind of uh, do kind of cross-chromography on uh, these fellows, how do you try and record, or how do you try to record this kind of other political information about your fellows, uh, which, which might have impact on their, their uh, treasuries. And do you have a sense about, especially in the interwar period, how these national political uh, debates and identities affected who was awarded fellowships for the I can answer for the first point, and you can on the second point. You. Begin. Okay, so um, concerning the political affiliation, it's a very good <laughs> um, question. Um, there is two ways. Sometimes you can see after the career or before, you see that this person were part of uh, the government. So here you can look at the political affiliation. I think it's important. The second point, we didn't develop, but if you look here, here. We say that it's important to cross sources and not to focus only on the Rockefeller archives. And it's the reason why, because um, we have some experience in the creation of data, prosopographical database and so on, you can find you know, information of these persons in all the you know, um, dictionaries and so on, and there often or sometimes you find information on the political affiliation and so on. And so this will be an important point in the database. It will be political, you know, I don't know the, the, the term in English, but political affiliation and so on. Perhaps it will not be possible to tell at each point in which party and so on, but it will be an important point to see because you are right, they were not only experts, neutral experts, sometimes they were very often to political uh, public figures. And very briefly on the second point, uh, I go back to this uh, uh, issue of finding more of these reports by uh, the Rockefeller Foundation men on the spot, those who recruited and reported back to New York. Here I think it would be very, very interesting to read this report to understand what these men on the spot uh, how they did make sense of the political affiliations and who these individuals were, which in the end uh, decided their fate, whether they would become or not uh, uh, international fellows. And this might be a way for us to engage with a kind of a very good point that you made. We might not go very far, but it would be a starting point. And then somebody else and those, for instance, interested in a specific case study like Spain, 
will, will go farther, but they can also use this kind of information. Yeah. Um, I would just want to add um, another information that is during uh, the Cold War, during in, in Taiwan, how they select fellows. They select, they actually, because by that time it's Cold War, so they actually had a high censure. censure. So they always ask other, like their, um, their parents or their um, bosses to sign a contract that if they leave Taiwan and they started to just sabotage the Taiwanese uh, reputation, they cannot go. So normally they will have a guarantee. So this is true that their political initiative, their political affiliation is really important in selecting uh, fellows. Of course, in, um, in uh, what we just showed, it's not that obvious, but actually I know there's one expert in psychology. He, he, his problem was he was um, trained in the Japanese regime, which uh, the Republic of Chinese hated. So he actually had a problem, even he got the, um, how, how do you say, even he was recruited by the WHO. The, um, the Republican Chinese government didn't give him visa to go abroad. So just to reflect on your ideas of uh, pol uh, political affiliation. Yeah. Yes, just a remark from uh, the discussion that uh, uh, we are uh, making now. I mean, uh, exactly this uh, practice uh, was, uh, is, is not new. I mean, for instance, in Greece, this kind of criteria, political criteria, are used even before the war, the interval period, to keep uh, scholarships to go abroad, to go in Germany, also, during the, uh, the Nazi period. So this is a common practice, uh, I would say. Um, a general remark, I mean, uh, all this discussion uh, seems to me that it's all about controlling the international health policy, health system, um, uh, looking um, uh, to the West. So, uh, I don't know if it is misleading to talk about internationalization instead of westernization <laughs> or after World War II, Americanization of public uh, health policy. Just, just a, a, a thought for the discussion. I can just add, or we can just add something concerning the Americanization. Um, perhaps you know, at the beginning of the 50s, there were an important reform at the Rockefeller concerning the public health domain and so on. And so they invite experts in order to make an audit, it was very modern, an audit of the, public, of the um, Rockefeller Foundation. And one of the points was they noticed the fact that perhaps the fact that all the fellows went to mostly the US and that they went mostly to John Hopkins and so on could be a criticism or could be criticized. And they said perhaps they put too much emphasis on the Americanization of the fellows. And what is interesting, David, they just said that, you know, thereafter it's the World Health Organization who will take on this program. The World Health Organization was very, for political and I think financial reasons, was very uh, conscious of this fact. So they decided not to send all the fellows to the US, but to create, you know, region where people from Egypt could go in the region or in Asia exactly the same through the you know, uh, uh, regional headquarters. So it was really a very important reflection after World War II not to put too much an American stamp on these fellows. If I can, sorry. 
Non, non. Mais prenons l'exemple de la Grèce et de l'interval théorie. C'est un fantastique exemple parce que beaucoup de ces experts grecs, je ne sais pas de ceux qui ont été en Allemagne pendant la période de travail, mais ceux qui ont été aux États-Unis et qui ont travaillé, par exemple, en Macédoine, vous avez des exemples de ces individus qui ont été entraînés non seulement en public health, mais aussi en agronomie, husbandry et d'autres choses. Uh, they end up appropriating so many of the practices that the Americans try to impose on them that, uh, of course, there, there is a second layer after indoctrination, there is appropriation, and, and in the end, probably also contestation uh, or adaptation to the, 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 the Greek context. And so, uh, of course, you are absolutely right. The attempt is that the attempt to, you know, Uh, uh, put in the brains of these individuals some new knowledge which has to have a pragmatic, practical content. But then there are so many other things that happen and then this is what is fascinating about these individuals. And some of them absolutely reject and exit the system. So uh, it's a very pertinent question. I... Well, as soon as the 30s, it seems to me that the uh, Uh, monopole, enfin, the monopolist situation of the United States in matters of fellowship is, is, down, is, is downsizing. I, I mean, the um, League of Nations is very careful to send, for instance, Chinese uh, uh, students as well in uh, uh, Germany or in fact. Uh, 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 Stampa is always uh, asking, for instance, that Chinese, as a peasant country, should send his, his, to veteran on, on, on animal uh, has, um, prevention epidemics, the episodes uh, in USSR. Uh, there is a diversification, well, which is slow, of course, but it seems uh, 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 really uh, starting. Uh, a question for you, if, if, if it's possible. Um, no, the, the most violent criticisms of uh, uh, denationalized education, as you know, begin uh, with the uh, British economist uh, Taune on the mission of the, of the League early 30s. He criticized the, the, these uh, uh, acres, these shelves of, uh, Amer of um, uh, Chinese library which are invaded by text American textbooks and he's say saying that it's, it's nauseating. And then uh, he criticized highly the fact that the return fellows are no more about uh, uh, America or country from, from, from when they are, they are coming back than the uh, village in, in, in China. But when, when, do you think that these shortcomings have completely disappeared at the end of your, of, of your period? Since uh, your, you, you are pre yourself saying how much uh, you may be uh, outsiders in international uh, administrations or bodies and outsiders in, in, in your own national administration. So are these... Uh, is there a, an improvement <laughs> in these uh, um, internal tensions between sending locals out and being able to reintroduce in the, uh, well, the, the whole problem of packing brains? Uh, the, 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 does it receive a, a satisfactory solution? <laughs> Before you answer, Ethan, uh, Jessica had a... I have another Sorry. question, actually. 
so. it into the into the room now. I, I was, uh, Thomas, you made a uh, throwaway uh, remark about um, the ranking of different kinds of fields. I think this is something we need to talk more about. I know the workshop is primarily about public health, but I think the status of public health in the wider context is actually really important. So I wonder whether you could spell this out and whether people have thoughts on my, my provocation that health and unrules I've come to realize relatively recently, perhaps not nearly as important as I had assumed, and many had assumed, but I, I, I'm hoping you will tell me otherwise. <laughs> So uh, to respond to your, uh, your question, in the 1950s to 1970s, what I found is that, first of all, uh, in Taiwan, the malaria was eradicated in 1965. So it's one of the countries that actually eradicated malaria. So if we look at the consequences, we can say that, well, it worked. I hate to give this uh, conclusion, but it worked. It actually worked. But you have to know that during that time in Taiwan, it's almost a dig, um, how to say, um, a, an autocratic system. So everything is fully controlled by the Republican government. So should we say that these fellows, they, they, they play an important part in being the in-between being the, those people who implemented the, the, the politics. But I think, first of all, the scale of Taiwan, the Formosa, it's small. And with the autocratic regime, it also helped a lot for, for patients, for people who live in Taiwan to force 
to follow this kind of um, standards. And uh, for another, um, to respond to uh, Jessica's idea, um, when you say about it, I was, um, I really, um, I found exactly the same thing for the USAID in Taiwan. The thing is, in USAID, they have so many money and they only have 0.6% uh, to public health. But they only have 0.6%, but compared to what WHO had given for Taiwan, the UNICEF, what they have given to Taiwan is still much higher. Mm -hmm. So, I, so, so it, it really intrigues me and I, I just want to reflect on the idea of the, the, the marginalization of public health within uh, development policy, I think it stays until 1960s, 1970s. And I think we really have to think about how to reflect on this because eventually it's just a tiny <coughs> bit comparing to the economic development and comparing to the military aid. But still, compared to the WHO, the UNICEF, it's still a lot more. Yeah. So it's a very similar. Yeah, it's a very yeah. When you yeah, yeah, I was nodding along. Okay. Can I can I follow up on this particular point uh, and uh, and go back precisely to the interval period and also the work of uh, Lyon? I think that uh, uh, it's uh, it's not entirely correct to just focus on public health because when you look into the archives of these institutions, and I was thinking about uh, the Near East Foundation and many others, uh, it's always at least a triptych of things, public health, rural development, and education. Uh, and these, things, these three things are intertwined in different ways, with different priorities in different places. And so for instance, if there is a group of uprooted uh, refugees, like uh, in Macedonia, uh, it's, it's clear that uh, some institutions will focus on something, others will focus on something else, etc. Same with the Armenians in Beirut or elsewhere. It's, it's, if they, find, they find targets, and they, or if you think about Palestine. That's also a pretty interesting example of, of this situation. And, uh, and if you think about World War II and UNRWA and the end of World War I, you could definitely co uh, compare and contrast UNRWA with the American Relief Administration because this kind of doubts or priorities, etc., are also uh, the issues and dilemmas of Hoover and the Hoover boys. Yeah. And these people problematize these things in ways that seem to me, I don't know much about UNRWA, but quite quite similar, so it's very, very interesting. And for the interwar period, Soviet Union is pretty much out of, uh, of the game, is a dwarf, or auto-eliminates it from some of these uh, um, um, places. And I can certainly say so for the Near East. So uh, it's not a big competitor, uh, and quite the contrary, whenever there can be an exchange with the Soviet Union, uh, even the Rockefeller Foundation people are ready to listen to, whereas uh, I'm not so sure that this is the case after 45. Okay. Can I just add something concerning this? We look at the, um, the evolution of development theory after World War II, and in particular the notion of social capital, which is interesting because it adds a new dimension, which is not only economics, infrastructure, and so on. And what is interesting, and so I will be in between, is that this notion came late, during the mid-50s and of 60, uh, beginning of 60s, and 
At the beginning, it focused mostly on education, and it's only in the second time that it also included health. From the beginning, there were health, but very few um, uh, economists begin to think about the relation between health and um, um, development. It was more between education. So it's true that all these issues are related because you have to think about education, health and development. It's, but health came late. And so it's okay. true, I think, that we have to think why health was not a major issue in all these developments concerning budget, concerning theoretical and so on. The second point I would like to come back to what you were saying, I think that in this shame and up to nowadays, because I can see the discussion in Switzerland and you could imagine, I can imagine the discussion in the UK, there are tensions between the international and the national. You can see all the discussion here in Switzerland concerning the international profile of some professor which has been criticized at the national level, you know. There are too much, too many foreigners in the university and so on. So I think that this tension between international capital, national capital being international insider, national insider and so on is a very political, a tricky question during the whole 20th century because it questioned the notion of national. And I think this is very important and so on. And I can see nowadays what are the implications. It's still, a I will not say a major issue, but it's still an issue among the academic and political, in particular in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. Can I answer Johannes' point as well? So the, the notion of public health, I think certainly was a very broad and inclusive one. And I think partly why maybe I feel slightly misled or to kind of in, in, in previous research is that the many of the public health officials are so very good at making such a broad case as saying public health is at the bottom of everything else. You can't have a reconstruction of cities and of infrastructure without putting public health right in there. You can't just simply hand out food and milk unless you think about nutrition and health in, in, in the broad context. I don't think this is a necessarily a Soviet origin, though. I think the, the, the historical trajectory would be that they um, talk about the, the League of Nations health, very broad, inclusive interpretation of health, um, uh, which, which has all kinds of different national trajectories and historiographical trajectories. I think there's many more experts, people in the room who can talk about that. But um, pu so public health, certainly, I think officials and, and medics are very good at making a case for why they're indispensable. What I'm I think we need to all pay more attention to is why that wasn't actually didn't seem to make much more much of a difference until the 1960s. And this seems to this has to be part of the WHO founding narrative, except it really isn't. Doesn't that put really into perspective where's the the, the the origin stories of the League of Nations Health Organization that's kind of struggling against the odds and trying to set something up out of nowhere? The WHO is very bombastic. Here we are, big and, 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 and able to do things. It should be twisted around. It shouldn't. It should be contextualized in a very different way. Concern that they would be stigmatized for having a difficult time at home. 
and again right to your uh, I was touched by your suggestion that the reason some of the files were empty or deleted from the Rockefeller Foundation there were two possibilities one they worried about the Cold War implications locally and two they worried about the fate of the fellows in the Russian case that wouldn't hold because there was a full set of files in Moscow that would have indicated who went, what their success was, what the trajectory was. So in IPAP, working in the Rockefeller, that you had a list, but then when you went to the dossiers, all of them were empty. And I asked, how, we, how did this, why was this? And they said, well, you know, we were short of space. So I said, well, that's not <laughs> yeah. Because in fact, how is it that the empty dossiers mainly affected the Soviet notice. So I think we have to be very clear that certainly uh, during the early Cold War period, the Rockefeller was paranoid about yes. having these files in there. Yeah. Yes. Well, let me just, um, one of my questions um, uh, actually connects to that a lot because I, 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 I wouldn't, well, I, I never studied the Rockefeller file per se, but, but I, I work on a couple of uh, virologists and scientists who <coughs> were fellows, and and there was never this kind of issue with it. I I would I think that that it's more of a the and I'm speaking to you to what you presented on on these multiple personalities of being an insider and an outsider at the same time, but how these were used flexibly by the the fellows themselves. Locally, at home, they were not, you know, advertising necessarily that they were Rockefeller fellows, but when making connections to, you know, international organizations or to other researchers, that was, you know, a very good way to, to, uh, to make those connections so they could, you know, wear the hat or not, um, depending on, on, you know, how they could mold their career path or their self-representation. Um, speaking to, to the, the, the importance of public health, I think, I think it's, Again, yes, very important to contextualize it, but I am not so sure that the budget can be taken as a signifier necessarily. It's a, it's a, it's always you know, there is the, I think there's there's a way of thinking about the importance of public health on the one hand, and then you know the realities of what you have to spend on most uh, uh, urgently and. Also, the kind of investment that you're making in health is very, very long term. So it politically doesn't really pay off. Uh, that's why you know governments in certain countries don't, don't want to touch the healthcare reform because that, you know it's political suicide. It's the it's that kind of, of, of thinking maybe that 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 can be paired up with it. Um, and uh, and just to connect in connecting the three papers, I was. Um, uh, uh, Jessica, you talked mo mostly about how relief workers themselves were thinking about the aid that they are participating in and the assistance and what that you know international health is. Um, and and uh, Leon, you were you were mostly looking at it from the organizational perspective of, of what the the that nature of that giving should be. And I was wondering about the receiving um, and. Uh, and also that the, how these concepts of what that aid is and what the what the the role of these organizations and what the aim of these organizations are um, reflect on the ground. We can say that well, you know, Americanizations, oh, very very bad. But you know, there are a lot of people on the ground who might want that Americanization. They do want the 
the machine that goes bing. They do want the the, the super high tech medical you know assistance. Mm -hmm. And there's there is that uh, strange you know web of expectations and, and from either side and and the 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 way in which it's imagined of, of what international health is. So I was wondering if you could um, reflect on that. Oh, and Patrick. Yeah, yeah. You, you, uh, uh, give, you gave a, a, a great importance to the political affiliation that that was there. There is another, another point that we have not uh, been speaking about, that when the, the scientific side, mm -hmm. for instance, in, in front there were very few fellows for the Rockefeller, but the one who was selected in the, at the end of the 20s was was very much a leftist. It was not a communist, but it was very, very proximate to the communist party at that time. And uh, he, he was selected by the Rockefeller official, officers in Paris because he was interested in statistics, which was very rare, very rare for uh, medical doctors in France. So there, was, there, there is also a, a, a scientific uh, physiognomy of people's for selection to, to fellow, and this should not be uh, forgotten. Forgotten, you can, can I ask a question to Jessica? Uh, okay, I have just one question for you. I remember having read a very interesting article of uh, Brew Baker, who is sociologue at UCLA, on the nationalizing policy of the Polish state during the interwar period. And he made a distinction uh, on the, this policy of nationalist policy of the states by opposing the inclusive uh, behavior of the states towards Ukrainian and the exclusive attitude or policy towards uh, Jews and Germans. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you see um, within the same country different behaviors of relief workers towards different populations, you know? The, if these relief workers within the same countries decided to include or to make insider of some population and to exclude or make outsider of some population based on what, uh, what I, I don't know what kind of uh, category and so on. Hmm. Yeah, I can come back to that. I, I definitely. Let's, let's wrap up then. Yeah. Um, uh, Thomas, definitely. I think uh, uh, one of the most striking things is the way in which the different missions look very different and apply very different principles of inclusion and exclusion. And in some ways, that's because they are. They, they, their mandate was, their brief was to adapt and work with the, uh, the receiving country. And then, as a result, they take on uh, mm. prejudices and, and requirements and inclusion and exclusion criteria of the receiving countries. And that's very clear in, in Poland, for example, uh, in, 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 in Albania, in, uh, in the DP mission in Germany, there, as a result of which there's many different UNRWA universes that are arguing actually quite different things at some point, definitely. It's a good, it's a good model, I, yeah, I, yeah, maybe you can hang it on to that. I will just say one point. You are true. <laughs> we perhaps put too much emphasis on the political dimension of the fellowship, but in our database, we will mostly put forward the scientific dimensions of these people because they are, you know, they are not anybody. They have a very strong scientific background, very often, and so on. So, uh, 
it's some it's perhaps, you know, it's not some. I think it's more than some. And what will be interesting with this huge database, it will not to point only individuals, but really to try to, to look at the wall and to see the subgroups within the... And this will be very interesting. 